0: what extent do we have free will? Why does climate change feel ideological? Will genome data collecting test the limits of surveillance? Is it possible that our intuition has been hacked? This is Through Conversations podcast, where curiosity goes from the human genome to the cosmos. We'll talk with the most brilliant minds to focus on answering all of these questions. And many more. This is Alex Levy. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. This episode was a very, very awesome experience. I had a lot of fun talking with Douglas Rushkoff. He has been named by MIT as one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals. He is an author and documentarian studying human autonomy in the digital age. He has published 20 books, including the just-published Team Human, based on his podcast, as well as the bestsellers Present Shock, Throwing Rocks at the Google Boss, Programmer Reprogrammed, Life Inc., and Meet Virus. We had a great conversation, talking about his newest book, Team Human, The Survival of the Richest, How Much Should a Company Be Earning, Team Human at Silicon Valley, How Darwin's Theory Has Been Manipulated, and much more. I urge you to go subscribe to Team Human's podcast and read the book Team Human, Douglas will additionally be writing five-minute excerpts from his newest book for the next 100 weeks on Medium, so be on the lookout for that. If you find this conversation insightful, consider subscribing to the podcast at any podcast feed you use and share it with a friend. We truly appreciate your support. With you, Douglas Rushkoff. Douglas. Hello. I uh, really appreciate taking the time for me to interview you. Um, Yeah. I was... Yesterday I was, um, I saw your, I, I don't think it was a debate, but it seemed like one you with Jason Silva.
1: Oh, that was a long time ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, The way you talked with him, he was like, why don't you want to be a transhuman? And you said, well, because I believe in humanity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's
1: funny. I mean if anybody should be be happy to be human it should be someone like him you know <laughs> he's he's young and beautiful and has you know lots of women and 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 a television show and money you know I would think he'd be happy where he is doing what he's doing being in his body as opposed to just trying to you know escape why why escape that existence it seems <laughs> kind of yeah. funny
0: yeah and it's very ironic because it feels the the, the notion of uh, uploading our consciousness to the cloud whatever that is they they think it's like we're on the same team they're saying no this is going to enhance humanity but not organically just right. technologically right. so it's weird like how how do you explain that right
1: and it's like they think that we are just prejudiced against things that are not organic. And I don't think that's the problem. It's not the distinction between what's organic and what's not. It's the distinction between, you know, what we know about human experience and what we don't yet know. You know, the only things that we can upload are what we've already identified. You know, and there's a whole lot to the human experience that we haven't yet identified. You know, there's there's things that we discover. And you know, we, we what we're talking about now when, when folks like Jason talk about uploading, they want to upload what we currently what we currently understand and then leave behind the things that we don't. And I think that there's more that we don't understand than that we do. So I don't want to, um, you know, surrender this for a simulation anytime soon.
0: Yeah, exactly. And we don't know what's happening here. We we we, we understand just a few things of consciousness, not everything. And and we're choosing a path that says, okay, so this is a, the theory of evolution, and evolution consists of passing information. So the next next part is inorganic. Next part is we understand what's humanity, and humanity needs to be in the cloud. Right. Like if it was part of it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to be a little bit more... Um... I don't know what the word would be. Uh, uh, tolerant of of their perspective, and you know, one way you know one way for me to do that is to say, look, it's fine if if some mutant people want to go try this other thing. You know, there's if you say, okay, there's some possibility that organic biological uh, humanity is going to end. Because of climate change or nuclear war or, uh, you know, the diseases that climate change creates. Uh, so that you could say that, look, you know, we want to increase the probability that some aspect of humanity survives. So we are going to uh, take, you know, a few thousand people and try to upload them, you know, or turn them into cyber beings or, you know, do some other you know, do some other path. Yeah, I mean that. You know, I guess that's okay. Uh, you know, they can they can go and try that. It'd be like you know, they're going to be a small group of people that will try to evolve to some other place. You know, as long as we don't judge it, it's not okay. It's not a better place. It's just different, and they are in some ways even sacrificing themselves. For, you know, there's some small probability that they will live, you know, that they will, uh, <laughs> you know, they'll survive this or remain conscious. Um, and and it's worth a shot, I guess. It's not, you know, so, you know, I'm trying to see it as it's that's OK that they're, you know, trying. But but to think of it as the the necessary path. Yeah. For for humans and to. Uh, for us to make our, our, I guess, our businesses and policies, you know, under the assumption that that's the most the 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 most probable way for humanity to survive into the future, that's a problem. You know, I would rather us focus on preserving, you know, the the species and nature and and the physical world that we're a part of. You know, make that the top priority. And then maybe have some people working on these Plan B, you know, scenarios for if we fail.
0: Exactly, and then why look for the second world when this one is the best one we have? And um, that brings me to your article, "The Survival of the Richest." What is yeah. that about?
1: <laughs> well, it's mainly about that, you know, what I what I what I learned by engaging. With some of these, you know, extremely wealthy people, is that they're they're really well they're victims of capitalism. What they're trying to do is to earn enough money uh, so that they can insulate themselves from the reality that they're creating by earning money in this way. You know, so they're you know doing uh, either developing technologies that destroy the environment or that lead to social unrest or that promote economic inequality, or that lead to uh, adversarial uh, uh, panic reactions by people, or that turn everybody into reptile brain people living in a state of constant panic. And they know that these technologies and software and platforms they're making have a great likelihood of destroying civilization as we know it. But rather than developing differently, they see themselves as so caught up in this game to make money um, and this 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 you know uh, survival of the fittest mentality that they would prefer simply to uh, dedicate a whole lot of their money you know twenty percent of their of their wealth which is the figure they were using with me towards uh, you know fallout shelters and uh, you know. Uh, it, Def- defendable farms for the apocalypse. You know, they, they're they buying land in New Zealand and Alaska and trying to figure out how to fortify these, you know, uh, uh, escape plans uh, so that they can really leave the rest of us behind in some kind of a zombie apocalypse and they can uh, survive in their little bunkers.
0: Yeah, and that implies that this can't be Fixed that there is no way to turn it around. But in your book, you say, "Well, you're not arguing to stop the use of technology in, in Team Human. You're arguing let's use technology to enhance humanity, not the other way around." And it seems as if we keep following the path of let's let's use humanity as the as the resource. We're gonna keep seeing this this pattern of people just trying to survive and look for shelters.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess they would see it as not as, you know, as the only way out, but as one way out, you know, but they don't realize that if they're, you know, uh, ex- if they're refusing to see the the, essent- the, the the kind of the more essential problem with growth for growth's sake, for with running companies the way they are, mm-hmm. With you know, looking at people as as resources, you know, from from whom uh, value is supposed to be extracted. You know, if they can't stop looking at things this way, then, um, you know, you know, they're preparing for a catastrophe that's tire, entirely unnecessary. You know, yeah. I, I would think that they could spend a whole lot less effort simply looking at how can I develop you know business plans that don't require growth you know it's it's fine capitalists should be able to make money that's fine they should make money for investing in new enterprises but they not get to make money forever from you know so let's decide what's fair exactly five times should they make five times their investment should they make 10 times their investment 20 times maybe 100 times their investment and then once they've made back a hundred times what they invested then they should it should stop then they should simply get a dividend every year you know they get another uh, a little bit but not or maybe nothing you know so you start i have a startup if you invest in it now you can get the first hundred times you know on your money and then after that uh Uh, the shares go back to the workers or to the community where it's involved. You've made a hundred times of your money. You, you should be happy. Now you can, you, now you can go home. Uh, you know, if, if we could think of it that way, then a company like Google or Twitter or Facebook will be allowed to grow into a multi-billion dollar company, but then it won't be forced to continue to grow after that. And that's really the whole, the whole trick. How do we, uh, uh, how do we get to the place where we're okay with a company just making 10, 20, 50 times what people put into it at the beginning, and then it can just hum along after that? It's like, you know, you can make money off when a car goes from, you know, zero kilometers an hour to 70 kilometers an hour. You know, zero to 70 is the acceleration period. Wow. I made seventy times you know whatever from 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 one to seventy I made that was good, but then after that it should be allowed to drive it just keep going at seventy. you don't have to go a hundred or two hundred or four hundred just keep going, and that's as big as the company needed to grow in order to serve its purpose,
0: yeah, definitely, and why keep chasing profits if they're valued at billions and if not trillions of dollars you know that I, I think there's there's companies that are valued more than the GDP of countries. I think the stock market keeps breaking more and more records. And it's, I I think it's, as you say in your book, it's the correlation between data and profits. That's making this circling spiral, never ending chase of profits, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's because, you know, I mean, capitalism has always been abstract. You know, it's, it's, the the tension has always been between capital money which is an abstract thing and people's time and the real world which is a real thing and and i would argue a limited thing i'm i'm and i understand that, that not everyone feels this way but i feel like the amount of matter in our atmosphere is limited you know that that and i would argue that science science would argue this too that there's not infinite resources in our uh, uh, biosphere or our, our planet's atmosphere, that that you would need to to develop regenerative tactics rather than just burning things um, in order to keep this all keep this all going. But money is just math. Money is numbers, so numbers can keep growing forever, from billions to trillions to anything. Mm-hmm. So when digital technology came along, it looked to capitalists, like, oh, this is going to allow us to go infinitely. This is going to do things that the regular industrial age couldn't do because the industrial age was limited by, you know, a certain amount of labor and matter and how much coal and how much gas. But digital is infinite. Um, And it's true on a certain level that digital is infinite. Digital can calculate infinite numbers of things, but there's still only so much human attention, human data, human activity um, for for the digital economy to mine before it too runs out or we run out of awareness, of autonomy, of things to surrender to this abstracted realm.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very true. And... How has been your your book, Team Human, how has it been received by people like in Silicon Valley? Have they read it or?
1: Yeah. I don't know. I mean, they've read it enough to, you know, they use language from the book in their slogans. Wow. You know, so that's true, but I don't think they use the logic of the book in their actual practices. So, they're really happy to say things like, oh, let's make technology more human, you know, let's develop humane technology, let's um, uh, optimize technology for people instead of optimizing people for technology. But, you know, when it's Facebook and Google saying it, when it's Uber arguing for, you know, universal basic income, I understand that it's coming from a different place, you know, that they're using these slogans really just to soften their impact on the world, to make it look like they're on the side of Team Human when really they're anything but.
0: How has been your experience, the the book tour, the podcast? How have you been feeling, the, the vibes?
1: I mean, great on a certain level. Uh... I'm uh, you know, I'll go on a show like, you know, Russell Brand podcast or
0: Sam. Yeah, that was very that was amazing,
1: which is nice. And but the thing is, I will get, you know, literally thousands of emails. I get close to a thousand emails a day. And wow, you would think that means, oh, great, this book is doing well. Um, But actually, it doesn't within the thousands of emails that I'm getting. The vast majority of them say something like, oh, I heard you talking about your book on Russell Brand's show. It sounds fascinating, particularly the part about artificial intelligence. Please tell me more.
0: Yeah. Why don't you go and, and read the, the book? <laughs>
1: why do you read the book? You know, really, at what point? And then I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm trying to scale myself to the Internet. You know, and that doesn't, that doesn't work. You know, that I get it, that people want to have a, they hear me talking about live human interaction, and then they want to have a live human interaction with me. And I'm just one little person, you know, and I I barely have time to have good live interactions with the people in my own life, with my wife, with my child, you know, and if I'm going to answer meaningfully every one of the, if it's only 500 emails asking me for, you know, a 500 word response to their question mm-hmm. that's already in the book. Um, it's not, that's, it's not fair. So I, I guess on the one hand, I'm, I'm extremely excited that so many thousands of people are interested in these ideas, but I'm a little dismayed that people don't want to, uh, want to engage with them in book form. You know, they want to, they want, they want to, uh, uh, you know, engage with me individually. And that's, that's tough, you know. So, yeah, I mean, that's great. And uh, in terms of industry, you know, I think we, people in the industry look at what I'm saying as somewhat naive. You know, I'm arguing that developing basic rapport, you know, rapport means, you know, basic uh, – intimacy with someone else, the basic ability to connect to another person, that is a prerequisite to solidarity and social change, that we need to be able to engage with one another socially in real time before we can fix the bigger problems of our world, that we're no longer coherent, we're no longer... uh, seeing or hearing one another accurately, we're in this state of, of, you know, fight or flight panic, largely induced by, you know, intentionally induced by our technologies. And, you know, so so this idea that restoring basic human contact is important, um, it comes off to most of the Silicon Valley world as sort of wellness, that's their new word for it. And they have apps for wellness, you know, wellness apps and mindfulness apps and all that. And I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, it's not quite what I mean. I mean, (laughs) just sit with another person, you know, look at your kids in the eyes, you know, put down the iPad when your kid is doing something, you know, uh, uh, don't photograph them, be with them. And that this is such an essential human need that if we don't, um, uh, if we don't start with that, then, then you know, all is lost.
0: Yeah. I, I related a lot. And actually, I laughed out, out loud when you said in the Russell Brand podcast that whenever you see someone at New York Park and Central Park, or I don't remember which park exactly, whenever you walk, you see, you try to find someone that's not looking at their screens. And they're actually looking at the trees and and that really resounded with me because i i do the same whenever i'm walking or whenever i'm in a class in the classroom whenever i see someone turning down their computers and looking at what the teacher is saying i mean like you're part of this too you you understand that there is nothing more authentic than this and that also brings me to, to to what you were saying right now that the why is it that they need us, the, the, the company, social media companies need us to be like an individual race to profit. Could you further go, go, go explain further on that?
1: Well, I guess the main, the main way is if we don't have, you know, healthy connections with other people, we try to substitute for those corrections or for those connections with, with product purchases, you know, so, you know, if you don't you know, if you don't have a girlfriend, you'll go use porn. If you don't have a family, you'll buy a bigger TV. You know, the, the 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 advertisement for blue jeans, you know, will always be saying, wear these blue jeans and you will get laid. Right. That's that's what they're always saying. And in one way or another. And who's that commercial for? Is that commercial for somebody who's getting laid? No, it's a commercial for someone who's not getting laid. Mm-hmm. You know, television needs people to be isolated and alone and afraid in order to make us dependent on the screen and the many products it's offering us. Because then products become kind of a shield. They become your insulation, your way of, of protecting yourself from the rest of the world. They're your your armor, and that's um, that depends on us being alienated and isolated from one another. You know, and now now that we're in the the digital age, you know, digital technologies work by by atomizing us, by separating us. They want us each to be you know sitting alone, afraid, because every minute that you spend connected genuinely with someone else in the real world is a minute that you're not online. You know, every, uh, everything you do that's not being recorded through your mouse or through your screen is data that's being lost. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's six seconds of your life that haven't been monetized by one of these companies. So they need us to be individuals. The more individually you act, the more data that gets produced, the more surface area they have on the marketplace. So it's really just all about money. Twenty people sitting in a room laughing together are not spending money. And Mm -hmm. that's the problem.
0: Yeah. So I I was in my political science class last week and we were talking about cooperation. And there's this book by Robert Axelrod, a political scientist, that says it's about the evolution of cooperation that actually... Um, evolution favors strategies that cooperate so this is counterfactual to what the Darwin theory and the evolutionary theory that the individuals are better by the survival of the fittest
1: well it's not counterfactual to Darwin it's what Darwin actually said
0: oh uh, so that's that, yeah. that maybe precisely the, the problem that we don't yeah, understand what market, he was saying
1: no well the free market capitalists or libertarians have a uh, uh, very cynically uh, misrepresented Darwin wow. as a way of promoting, you know, Ayn Rand and her mm-hmm. uh, uh, competitive model of the world. No, the, the Darwin wrote about it all the time. He was consistently amazed at the ability of species to collaborate amongst themselves and with other species in order to ensure mutual survival and flourishing. You know, even in so far as the, the a species will limit its grazing and its hunting in order to preserve <laughs> the things that it, that it's living off. But you know, more more modern scientists have looked at the way that you know trees are not competing for sunlight in the forest. that trees actually uh, uh, are
0: inter- interconnected.
1: Yeah, they share resources. The larger tree will share the sunlight, you know, through its root system. It'll share its sunlight with the smaller trees. And then when the leaves fall in the in the winter, the small trees, which are usually the evergreens, will share their resources with the big trees. And this whole transaction is enacted by by uh, mushrooms under the ground that get a service fee for moving the resources back and forth. So it's one big interdependent dance. It's much more like a coral reef of interdependent species than it is some, you know, jungle battle.
0: Yeah, and this is what you say in the book Team Human. You say that maybe this is what makes digital media dangerous is that engagement through it it's just a new way of being alone because it, that's a quote from you. And what I get from this is that it makes an illusion that we're seeing each other every day. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with Snapchat. I, I, I saw this last week. My friend has like 200 strict days of sending selfies to another person. And I ask him, have you seen them in the last week? No, I haven't. And they feel as if they're more connected through these Snapchat technologies and the streaks than actually streaking and s- through literally seeing each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 part of the problem is the the less accustomed we are to engaging with other people in the world. You know, the less uh, uh, the less capable we are of. Of doing it, you know. So now, you know, people are are more and more afraid
0: yeah.
1: of one another. There's more students every year come into my class with notes from their doctor saying, "Please excuse Johnny from class participation because he's got a social anxiety disorder." And so I have a, a, a room full of kids. I'm not allowed to call on them uh, because they're afraid to present or afraid to speak in front of others. You know that's that's what they should have learned in in elementary school or high school. It's more important than the math is the ability to, to look at someone.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And nowadays we're not particularly threatened by like a big uh, rhinoceros or a big lion. No. So I think our amygdala has associated threat with uncomfortable, with awkwardness. So, Every time we get a chance to, if we're going to feel awkward, we associate it with danger. And in the long run, if you go and you pass through the awkwardness, that makes connection, meaningful connection. The in-between moment between words and the in-between moment between looking at each other's eyes, that improves our society, not threatens it as as we're associated. And this, I keep thinking about the dating apps that exist nowadays that you flip like humans are a catalog nowadays and well they're they're a catalog but in the real world you see a person and through conversations and through perception you see okay i like this guy or i don't like him now you just swipe left or swipe right and you get the same you associate the same thing you know
1: yeah but and worse than that though is the machine eventually learns what you like and what you don't
0: and stop. Yeah, the algorithm.
1: Yeah, it stops showing you what you like or what you don't like, you know, or or what, it, I mean, it's not really doing that either. It's actually showing you what it thinks it can sell you. But, you know, for this argument, <laughs> it starts excluding all the kinds of people that you're still afraid of. You know, hmm. oh, they're brown or they're women or they they have different opinions. The more the technologies do that, um, the less tolerant we become of difference, the less tolerant we become, the less we know about the world. You know, your, your news finding app, you know, it sees that you swipe the wrong way on anything about war. So it finally understands, oh, you know, Douglas doesn't like stories about war, so we'll stop showing them to him. So now war has just been taken out of my whole you know than my knowledge i'm not going to know if there's a war i mean yeah. you could say oh isn't that great he doesn't like hearing about war now he doesn't have to but you know at least when you bought a newspaper you know you don't have to read the story about the war but you see it on the you see it on the front page at least you know that it's there you know and you 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 decide not to read it but it's 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 in your awareness now it's just gone you know it's excised so you don't like seeing about climate change you don't want to know we're not going to tell you it doesn't exist um, And that, yeah i don't think that that's the the healthiest way to go through the world
0: yeah and so who are team humans enemies are they the companies are they the algorithms are they data i don't know is it capitalism
1: yeah maybe i mean i don't like thinking in terms of enemies but i would think well like team humans enemies uh, are whatever wants to you know whatever doesn't like the humans
0: um yeah what I, what, what I mean with this is like I, I this is a theme that keeps recurring in your book that algorithms don't have feelings algorithms algorithms can't categorize the world, so if you swipe left or you swipe you didn't like the war topic, they don't say, "Oh, he's more sensitive to this topic they just trying to like follow the the command that they were given. No.
1: Yeah, but it's not really the command by you. They're following the command
0: given to by the them programmer. By
1: their coder, and the coder yeah. is just following the command, you know, given to to them by their you know supervisor, who's listening to the CEO, who's listening to the shareholders. So the entire company and all the algorithms it's, that it creates are there to try to extract value. From the humans, but the people in the company are humans too. They just either are only looking at such a small piece of the process that they don't understand
0: mm-hmm.
1: what they're doing, um, or they, um, you know, they just have have uh, such a faith in the, uh, uh, you know, the business plan of the company they're working for or such a need to grow it that, you know, they'll make whatever, uh, whatever they need, you know, whatever's necessary to, to do that. So it's hard to say, Oh, is the programmer my enemy is the CEO the enemy is the shareholder the enemy. You know, I think it's more these, these anti-human systems that we've Mm -hmm. invested in. And sure, there are some people who I would say they're kind of the enemy, like maybe, B.J. Fogg, the guy at uh, uh, Stanford University who uh, has a captology department that's there really to figure out how do we addict people to platforms and social media? How do we change people's behavior? And we'll just give these services to the highest bidder. You know, those guys, you could call them the enemy, the ones that are consciously working to thwart human cognition, to make people dumb, to put us in an anxious state of fear, people who, who work hard to make us afraid of one another um, or, or want us to act against our own best interests. Yeah, I would say they're the enemies of Team Human. Um, the, the ones who are consciously hurting people, I would say, are our enemies.
0: Yeah, they're fostering data and they're shutting down creativity as you say and what 10 years from now or 5 years from now what would you like to see as the very first thing changing in technologies and media digital media
1: i mean d- positive change could manifest in any number of ways i mean i don't know that i don't know that i would look to how technology has changed for my measure of how we're doing better. You know, I feel like that's putting the focus almost on the wrong thing. I would want to look at how human beings have changed. Are people spending more time with one another? Are, are, is the suicide rate going down or up? Um, how many people are dedicated to preserving a climate that supports life? Um, you know, how many people are... Uh, uh, are living with basic economic uh, and racial equality. Um, mm-hmm. Do women earn the same as men? Uh, you know really sort of the basic metrics of uh, human well-being. Because uh, if I focus on that, then theres there's thousands of different ways technology might look that could that could support that. But, yeah, I would think it's a world in which people are not staring down at their screens, you know, where they're engaged with one another, where I see more smiles, where I see less pollution, where the probability of imminent extinction of our species is lower rather than higher. You know, stuff like that.
0: So, but this is, uh, sorry for my ignorance, but like what I, I think about this if we decrease our use of technology, of social media, do you think it will have a better, a, a greater impact on the, uh, in the world, or do you think like through our social media platforms, which they like, thankfully they connected me with you, th- they can be used to like enhance these values, no, this, the, the value system of humanity.
1: Sure, if they were you know programmed
0: differently. But they they're not that's that's the problem <laughs> they, they don't seem to to want to do that. So do you think it's the value system that leaders in technology and politics have that are not running the things like accordingly? do you think they need to change? what which values would you like to see in our leaders?
1: What values in our leaders um, I guess to start. You know, I mean, America is an easy example. So we have leaders that use government to rob the public of its money and resources for personal gain, right? So the idea of the leader is when I get to be leader, I get to take everyone's money.
0: Yeah, it's weird.
1: and, And exercise power over them and make them hate one another so that I could take more of their stuff. That's not, for me, that's not a good leader. So I would like, and it's really simple, I think good leaders would be ones who are looking for ways of making life better for lots of people. And so it's kind of so super simple. Um, I don't know that, you're, you know that your leaders are really any better right now. You know, they're looking well, their personal gain and power. And it's, it's mm-hmm. scary.
0: Yeah. Here in Mexico, it's all about legacy. And it's weird because, as you say, if we improve people's lives, if leaders actually work for that, their legacy would be intact. It would be better than just increasing GDP or increasing, you know, like. Yeah. If, if someone would actually say, OK, I'm in a position of power right now. I can do meaningful change, meaningful change in human lives. They're, they're in the, in, they can't lose on that perspective. And they seem to think they are, and they, they could.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of them are thinking of it. How do I make people's lives better without alienating the billionaires and millionaires? who have, you know, helped support my campaign or who have the real power in my country. Yeah. You know, and it may be impossible to support this many billionaires and feed the people.
0: I think you you said several times that what excited you from, from the... Occupy Wall Street movements, and it, it was actually occupying our space that we were actually here. No. Yeah, that, I mean, that be good.
1: I was just answering a tweet where someone was saying, um, yeah, "I like Rushkoff's stuff, but his solutions are too folksy for me. His, his solutions in Team Human are too folksy, hmm. and it's like that's weird. The book is called Team Human." yeah and the the folk are the humans exactly the the the, yeah so the solutions for team human will be folksy what i'm looking at is how do i increase the strength and will of the humans and i'm thinking of it right now and i've written 20 other books so think of it from other sides but team human i'm looking at it from the human perspective how can the human organism be strengthened you know, rather yeah. than looking at, at policy or at data or at, you know, social media platforms, what is it that humans can do as humans? How can we restore our resilience, our rapport, our solidarity in order to, uh, uh, you know, r- recall and retrieve what it meant mm-hmm. to be human?
0: Yeah, and the one book that particularly interested me was your take on Judaism, I'm Jewish myself, and I would like, like, if you could further explain your thoughts on how is it that Judaism favors open source and collaboration, and how could, what could we obtain from that?
1: Well, I mean, to be fair, most, you know, modern institutional Jews would now disagree with me, Right.
0: Yeah, that's, that's because true.
1: Judaism Judaism decided, you know, really in the twentieth century, they decided to become a religion, you know, to look like any other religion on the block. But when Judaism was conceived, it was meant almost as an anti-religion. It was meant as a a kind of a a, a mechanism for the cult survivors of Egypt mm-hmm. to live ethical lives. You know, and it was, it, was, it was trying to say that instead of looking at idols and gods you know, for the answers or for your devotion, look to one another. You know, so all of the Jewish mechanisms were about taking the idol off the ark, you know, and having the ark, the, 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 the ark is a, a, I mean, the Egyptians had arks too, you know, the Jews put a Torah inside their ark, but in general, arks were these just, uh, little platforms with gods on top of them. So the Jews took the God off the top of the ark and, in in Torah, you know, they have God saying, you know, uh, there in the empty space, you know, when you all come together, I will, you know, I will be with you. So, you know, what, what they're saying is that the way to the way to uh, invoke the divine is through connection with other peoples, by gathering. You know, where human beings gather together, that's where the divine happens, between the people. And, you know, the Jews were really concerned, they weren't even Jews then, they were Israelites or Hebrews, they were Hebrew, really yeah. concerned when they were going to write down Torah, because they had always had an oral tradition that... that, that this practice was something that was done with people together in real place. They, were, they would say the stories out loud, and they were very concerned if we write it down, people might just read it. They might just sit alone and read it, and then the whole purpose is gone. The, the convening of human beings together is, is gone. So they made all these rules, and they said, okay, so let's make it that if you're going to read Torah, you have to have 10 people there. You know, a minion, you know, there are these these rules. So it's like, okay, if we're going to read, at least we're reading together. And, you know, Judaism really became this practice. It was about transparency, you know, that everybody needs to know how to read this book, you know, that it's that it's you don't use pictures. You don't have pictures of gods. It's the text is even is is supposed to look like flame. So you don't see it as solid. So you see it. If you look at the ancient Hebrew, it was written with these kind of flame-like pieces so that it feels transparent, that you have to be literate. You know, the the to enter the Jewish religion, it's not about an act of faith. You don't fall backward into the water and say, I believe. What you do is demonstrate that you could read the Torah and speak intelligently about it. So you have to show that you're, you're literate. And between, you know, this transparency and literacy, that's supposed to bring you then to social justice, that the metric of whether you're doing a good job is... Are there less hungry people? Are you making the world a better place? Are you performing, you know, mitzvot? Which are these sort of commandments or blessings? Are you are you improving the lives of others? And that's not about what you believe. Jews don't have to believe anything. That's why I don't see it as a religion. What Jews are doing is trying to just practice um, or enact social justice through, um, through behavior. And that's... Uh, It's trickier if you don't have something to cling to, you know, other than the other people. You don't have a statue. You don't have a belief. You don't have a tenet. What you have is, um, you know, this very open thing. And then, of course, yeah, the law, the Talmud, the, 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 and the, and the Midrash, which is the interpretation of Torah, that's all open source and anybody can contribute. You know, they say that anybody's Midrash, anybody's interpretation of Torah is valid. So, gosh, what mm-hmm. does that mean? I mean, it means one big, you know, interpretive fractal that we're in where everybody's, um, everybody's perception matters. And once you realize everybody's perception matters, that means everybody matters and we better be friends, you know, <laughs> better figure out how to be friends with as many as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love your quote that say being social may be the whole point. <laughs> That's we'll keep forgetting that and. That's something we need to keep in mind, and not just I don't know, like religion became our God, and now it seems like data and science are becoming the new the the new accessory of worship, so maybe we we need to change it around and start thinking again about collaboration because that that's what's all about, and yeah, so let's say that artificial intelligence comes to life. Let's say it's working and it's all around us. How would you pitch Team Human to artificial intelligence?
1: Well, when do you, what do you mean when you say artificial intelligence comes to life?
0: Well, you know that... <laughs> do you mean it's, it's It's autonomous. You know, like the, the whole theory behind artificial intelligence, that they can make decisions on their own. And maybe, let's say a scenario where... They're robots among us. So, how would you pitch humanity to artificial intelligence? How how to prevent them saying, "You know what? Maybe they're destroying the world. They're destroying the economy. Everything. The the solution should be to end humanity." How would you pitch humanity to artificial intelligence?
1: Uh, I don't think it could really learn. You know, all you could do is is
0: you know hmm. like because you because you think like they're running through through a program, no, through through code.
1: Well, as long as you're using technology on people, you got the wrong you're going the wrong way. So, as long as we're developing you know, algorithms to manipulate humans, you know, and artificial intelligences to change human cognition and behavior, then we've lost. You know, then they will get us to do whatever it is, whether it's capitalism or war or... Yeah. You know, that's just it. You know, yeah. in, in 2001, you know, Space Odyssey, which is really a movie about artificial intelligence. It's about how the robot. You know, the reason he decides to kill the people on the ship is because he sees that he's been told the truth about this discovery in the moon and Jupiter, and the astronauts haven't. So he concludes that if he's been told the truth and they ha- it hasn't been disclosed to them, that he's the superior life form, that human beings lie to each other. Um, so. I don't see how our artificial intelligences could conclude anything different because that's what they're being told, you know, that Hmm. they're being told that we are, you know, that we are the problem and that they are the solution. And as long as they believe that, um, we're fucked.
0: (laughs) We're basically, yeah, (laughs) that's true because they're not... Consciousness is not being programmed in like we can not program consciousness. That's the, that's the whole problem. So I
1: don't, yeah, I mean, and you know, maybe they will, you know, maybe they'll make something, you know, you can, I can, I can, you know, have sex and make a baby and the baby's conscious. So I think that, you know, the computer scientists are thinking I can, you know, get my computers to have sex or something. You know, And then they'll make a, a conscious little machine. But yeah. I think it's way more likely that we'll develop a machine that's simply capable of convincing us that it's conscious. You know, Artificial intelligences are designed to manipulate us.
0: Yeah, like the Turing, the Turing test, no? Like you say in yeah. the book.
1: So they'll make a little iPhone that says, it's, oh, don't turn me off, mommy. Don't <laughs> turn me off. You're hurting me. You're hurting me. And they'll say it and they'll go, oh, okay, iPhone, I'll stay with you. And as long as they, the, the phone figures out how to do that, then it's serving its purpose, which is to distract us from real life, which is to get us to engage with it to the exclusion of everything else. Mm-hmm. And then we die.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're five minutes away from an an hour and I just... Let I wanna I wanted to ask you this because I'm whenever I ask this to someone they they have a hard time choosing. But let's say you have to choose between the two of those, okay? Which one would you choose, uh, George Orwell's 1940 1984 or Brave New World by Huxley? Which scenario would you like to like if you had to choose one? <laughs> I'll <want> to
1: that. <laughs>
0: I know. I know which... it's.
1: Would you rather? Would you rather lose a foot or an eye? Do you,
0: do that <laughs> yeah. And I, you I kn- <laughs> yeah. I knew that if I want to, I, I was going to ask you that. It, I would be like, "That's that's not what I'm about." Okay, though, but which would you rather, <laughs> lose,
1: you rather lose? A foot or an eye?
0: Mm, Tricky. I don't. That's true. I. I yeah. I. I think. It should be the foot, no? The, the, that's be? the most the logical. I
1: like that. It should be, but which would it be? The guy's got the axe and the and The and the screwdriver Well at your eye, the <laughs> axe is at your ankle. He's going to pick one. Five. Or he's going to do both. Five, four, three.
0: Two, no, the foot. foot has the foot's be. going. No, I, I like to see. I like to see.
1: Right. Yeah, but you can see with one, <laughs> one eye. You can't walk with one foot. I guess they've got fake feet now, so you could get one. I mean, as I, I would probably (laughs) pick Huxley's because I feel like it's easier to have a revolution in Huxley's world. That's true. It (laughs) feels harder to have a revolution.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, I agree with that. Yeah. Douglas, this has been amazing. Your TED talk was amazing. Your book is amazing. So let's try to keep contact and and oh Mexico Mexico needs you. Uh, yeah. But yeah, let's keep in touch and I really appreciate you okay. taking the time for for this. And congratulations on your new book. you all of your books. You, uh, you're one of the few that's appealing to to our humanity still. <laughs> so uh, thanks. Sure. Okay. Okay. Bye bye.
1: Alright.